morning, church. Morning out there, those out there on Facebook. Um, before we get started, i got to do one thing before we get started. I have to take a deep breath. I haven't took one of those in a long time. If you know, you know. Uh, uh, i got a few announcements for you before we get started. My name is Brian Hall. I'm an elder here at North Bullet Christian. Uh, we have two announcements. You should have a Connect card in front of you. Uh, please put your name on that so we know that you're here and place them in the basket. There's also room for you to put your uh, prayer request on there uh, so we can pray for you guys. Also, in your bulletin, men, there should be a uh, little sheet like this. All you men out there, please fill this out. And there's a bucket with a yellow sign on it. Please drop in that bucket so we know that you got it. Um, got exciting things planned for the men coming up. So, if you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 45. We'll read that, then we'll pray. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with a baptism which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to him, The cup that I drink you will drink, and with a baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Verse 42. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant, and whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. And verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So, have you ever heard the term upside-down kingdom? This is most often used when people talk about following Jesus. When you follow Jesus, your life is flipped up. It's flipped upside down. It is turned upside down. Everything that we know, everything that we've been taught on earth is flipped. It's the complete opposite. Everything that we know in our everyday life gets turned backwards. It is the complete opposite of everything that you were taught before you come to know Christ. Even the Bible backs this up. Matthew 20, verse 26 says, It shall not be so among you, but whoever will be great among you must be your servant. 1 Corinthians 1, 27 says, But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Paul tells us in, in Philippians 2 that Jesus was equal to God, then he emptied himself and made himself what? Made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of what? A servant. 
2 Corinthians 8 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. We see the things that the world says makes you important. The world says that makes you the it person is completely unimportant in the kingdom of God. It's completely unimportant in that what? Upside down kingdom. It's not important. The things that seem weak uh, and unimportant and, and those who are humble and poor, the world says you're a nobody. That's what the world says. If you're meek and humble, you're not anybody special. But listen, the, the, the more humble you are, the more meek you are, the more uh, the poor and broken brings you closer to the heart of God. In this two-week series that we're going to see, uh, over, over, we're going to talk about the upside-down kingdom. We're going to go exactly what is the upside-down kingdom. The next two weeks, we're going to look at that. Uh, today, we're going to look at verses 35 through 44. And next week, verse 45 will have its own sermon, its own special sermon next week, because there's so much information there. We'll go over verse 45 next week. Good stuff. So stay tuned the next two weeks. It's good stuff. Uh, before we break down these verses, I want to set things up a bit. I like to do this. I like to set things up a bit before we dig into uh, the actual verses. Uh, there's a few things we have to understand before we go forward. First thing is that we live in a narcissistic society. We do. We live in a me-first society. We look and care about ourselves first. Listen, I'm not saying anything new. This, this is what we are. This is in our nature. We were born this way. We were born selfish. This has always been a thing. It's not anything new. Um, if you're familiar with Greek mythology, there was a young man named Narcissus. He was a young man... As a young man, he would walk across this pool of water, walk by this pool of water. And as he walked by this pool of water, he would notice himself. He would see his reflection in the water. And he grew fascinated with this. He loved seeing himself in the water. He couldn't stop looking at himself. He stood there and stood there. He was consumed about what he looked like. He saw himself. He was consumed with himself. And ultimately, he died there. He died looking at himself in that water. Now, this is where we get the term narcissism. So we see we're obsessed with ourselves. As a society, we have fallen in love with ourselves. We've done it. We've fallen in love with ourselves. If you guys read books, you look at the best-selling books, the top of the the top of the list are always self-help books. Even so-called pastors out there, these so-called huge churches, it's all about how can I fix me? How can I be a better person? So it's not just the world, it's, it's the so-called, these big churches, it's all about us. How can I make myself better? Our generation is about the ego. We want to feel our ego. Now, I was debating whether or not to put this in there, but some of you might get mad at me. That's okay. But a pet peeve of mine, it's been like this for a long time. Constantly, I see the same people over and over post selfie after selfie after selfie after selfie. Drives me nuts. Because it's all about them. 
People, look at me, look at me. Again, it's about ourselves when we do that. We want people to look at us. We want to get likes at, at, our, at our selfies. That's what we do. It's in our nature. Now, even in our leaders and, and the people that we want to be our leaders in the world system, what type of leader do people want? They want a brash. They want an ego. They want a guy who has that aura about him that he can do anything. He's got that personality that, that is so great, so out there, so about him. That's what we want. How often do you see somebody who is meek and humble as our leaders? doesn't happen very often because that's not what we want. We want that personality. We don't want someone who is humble and gentle. But again, that's promoting self. That's what we see in our leaders. I love this quote. It says, a man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. Let me say it again. A man wrapped up in himself makes for a very small package. Now, this quote is going to get you to I love this. It's a John Piper quote. It says, Today, the first and greatest commandment is to love yourself with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. He's not lying. Today, the, the greatest commandment in our society is to love yourself with all your heart, strength, soul, and mind. What is that supposed to be? Is it supposed to be that way? It's not. In this upside-down kingdom, we see a battle between what the world says and what the kingdom of God says. That's the battle that we're going to see these next two weeks. The world says greatness is about being served by others. How many people can cater to me? That's what the world says. How many people can serve me? But the kingdom says the greatest greatness is how many people do you serve? It's about us serving, not be, us being served. Also, before we jump into the verse, I want us to look at the difference between pride and humility. That is something we'll see in the next two weeks, pride and humility. You may not know this, but the Bible has a lot to say about pride. It's in there. The Bible tells us God does what? He hates pride and he honors humility. In the Old Testament, we see in Proverbs 8.13 says, The fear of the Lord is to hate evil pride and arrogance the way of evil. If we are to adore God, if we are going to love God, we have to do what? We have to hate pride. Proverbs 16.5 says, Everyone who is proud in heart is at what? An abomination to the Lord. Proverbs 21.4 says, A proud heart is sin. Not just in the Old Testament, but the New Testament. Uh, Romans 1.30 tells us that, talks about the haters of God. We see that pride is an element of the reprobate man. 1 Timothy 6.3 said, pride leads to false teaching. We talked about this earlier. Pride leads to false teaching. It's about you. It's not about God. It's about what you can do. 1 John 2.6 says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
is from the world. It's not from God. James 4, 6 tells us that pride alienates us from God. God resists and opposes the proud. But in that same verse, we see humility. We see in James 4, 6, it says, but he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but what? He gives grace to the what? The humble. So he opposes someone who is proud, who, who says it's all about them, but he gives grace to the what? The humble. Who humbles themselves before him, he gives grace. Micah 6.8 says, What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Psalm 138.6 says, For though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. If you're humble, you're close to God. Psalms 10, verse 17 says, The Lord hears the desires of the humble. We're also told in the New Testament to put on humility. Not just to put on humility, but to be clothed in humility. Not just that, but to walk in humility. That's how we're supposed to live our lives. Humble people. Now I ask this question, is it easy to do? It's not easy to be humble. It's easy to be prideful. Because that's what we know. Pride is a difficult thing for us to overcome. It's a daily battle that we're going to have to fight over and over and over again. Again, that's what's pushing our society is pride. About self, about the self. That's what's pushed and pushed and pushed. Now, I want you to see every sin that you commit feeds off pride. Every single one of them. Every single sin that you commit, it feeds from pride and comes from pride. You see, all sin is based on what? Self-gratification. It appeals to you what you want. Doesn't it? What is it called when you when you when you want to, you, you're tempted to do something? You have temptation. If it wasn't tempting, we wouldn't do it. Again, when we do that, it, it expresses our own pride when we sin. We think we have a right to do whatever we want. I can do whatever I want. When we sin, pride is exalted. You see that? When we sin, pride is exalted. When we sin, man exalts who? He exalts himself. Now, it isn't just our generation. Every generation, for to be any time, is self-centered. Every single one of them. Not just ours. Not just, as a lot of you guys like to say, my generation as young people. Uh, it, it isn't just us. It's everybody. Everybody that's walked this earth is self-centered. This is why it is an upside-down kingdom. It goes against everything that we're used to. Now let's look at our verses. We see in verse 35, it says, And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. 
Now, first off, this is a selfish request. James and John, they desire to be great. They want greatness. That's what they want. This sounds familiar. They want to be great. We see with James and John, they were both natural brothers. Um, They were fishing partners. They did everything together that brothers do. They did everything together. You may not know this, but they were also known as the sons of thunder. Uh, What that means is that they were both fiery guys. They were both hard-headed. They were both zealous. And you can see that in in this passage. Um, Also, these two were part of the inner circle. James, John, and Peter were Jesus' inner circle, the closest ones to Jesus. They came up to Jesus with this so-called important question they had to ask. But Before we get into that, what they asked, I want to review a little bit. The last time I was up here, uh, we preached on Jesus foretelling his death for the third time. Now, if you remember correctly, Jesus went into exact detail what was going to happen to him. That he was going to get beat, scored, spit on, mocked. His flesh would be ripped from his back. That ultimately he was going to die on the cross. So they've heard this. This is right before this. They've heard this. Let's see how they reacted. Remember, they had a, Jesus was out in front. He was out in front the whole time by himself. So they had to catch up to him, and they said, teacher, and that's important, the word teacher here is that's what they called him because he was their teacher. He taught them everything. Now, the way they ask this question is important. I want you to look at this. You parents out there will know what I'm talking about. It's like a child coming up to his parents, and the kid's knowing exactly that his parents are going to say no. Exactly. So they're, they're going to go around it, instead of asking the question directly, they'll be like, Mommy, Mommy, don't be mad at me. Don't get upset with me. I just threw a baseball through the window, but don't get mad at me. Promise me you won't get mad. That's exactly what they did. Just like that. You parents know exactly how that feels. It would make you upset. Just tell me what you did. Tell me what you want. We want you to do whatever we ask you. And we want you to say yes. The thing is, they're acting like immature children. That's what they're doing. Verse 36. Jesus' response. It wasn't a blind promise. And he didn't say, oh yes, I'll give you whatever you want. Not going to happen. Let's see what he says. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? He he knows exactly what they're asking. And he's not going to give them what they want. We see in verse 37. Let's look at that. And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand, and one at your left in glory. Now, this is a remarkable and a bold statement on James and John's part. Now, we just talked about this. Jesus was foretelling what's going to happen to him for the third time. That he was going to get beat on, spit on, his flesh flesh ripped. And they asked this question? 
We want to sit at your right and your left in glory. There was no follow-up questions about his suffering. There was no questions about, oh, Jesus, what's going to happen? How are we going to go through this? But look, what were they worried about? They were only worried about themselves. Just like kids, they only heard what they wanted to hear. They only cared about what they thought it took to follow Jesus. That's it. Now, I want you to see this is important too. They are being completely selfish and arrogant in every way. I want to say this. These disciples were what? They were common men. The most common above all men, that's what these disciples were. These guys weren't noble. These guys weren't rich. They weren't mighty. Think about this for a minute. They had the notion that they would be elevated for the first time in their lives. This is appealing to them. These guys have been poor their whole life. They've worked their butts off their entire lives. They've never had anything to their name. They've busted their butts. They were the lowest on the social status. Elevation in general is appealing, isn't it? If you were told you get you get to be the, the, the you get the biggest raise that you've ever had, would that be appealing to you? Promotion is appealing to everybody. While the request is out there and a crazy request, there is faith in their statement. They do believe in Jesus. They do believe that He is the King. They do believe that. They believe that He will rule over His kingdom. They knew the idea of the royal throne image that surrounded the throne room with his officials on both sides of the throne. But they didn't fully understand it. They didn't fully understand what was going on. They had a good theology, good theology of who he was, but they didn't truly understand. Now, I want to go over five reasons why they made this bold statement. The first one is, Jesus told them this would happen. First one is that Jesus told them this would happen. Now, Mark's gospel does not say this, but Matthew's Matthew's does. Matthew 19, 28 says, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. See, Jesus said this, but... The context is a future event, a future thing. Not now. They didn't understand the term the new world. They were concerned about the idea of promotion and missed the idea and the idea that they were going to have to suffer and that were going to be rejected just like Jesus. Again, they heard what they wanted to. The second reason, their mother was pushing this. Now, mothers out there, I may step on some toes here. Uh, you guys want what's best for your kids, right? You want what's best for your babies. No matter what it takes, you want to do what's best. Matthew twenty twenty one says, And he said to her, what do you want? 
She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to set one at your right hand and one at your left in your kingdom. Now, mothers, you have a blind love for your kids, especially moms and their sons. You have a blind love out there that no matter what they do, they can do no wrong. That they should be elevated to the best opportunities that they can ever have, right? That's what their mother here wants. No matter what they do, they can't do wrong in her eyes. And it's also important to know that their mother was part of the entourage of Jesus. She followed Jesus around. And again, she thinks it's time for her kids to advance in the kingdom. She wants that for her kids. The third thing is James and John were in the inner circle. We talked about this. But the thing is, these two thought that they could do whatever they want. They are in Jesus' inner circle. You guys know that. If you're in with, in with the boss, you can get things done. If you're close to the boss, he, he'll, he'll like what you say. They thought just because they were part of the inner circle that they could get exactly what they wanted. If they asked for it, they were going to get it. They were the closest to Jesus. They should be able to advance in his kingdom because they were closest to him. One should sit at the right and one should sit at the left. The fourth reason, because they were relatives of Jesus. Now, this their mother's name was Salami. It's a weird name. I probably said it wrong, but... Salami was the mother of James and John. Now, many scholars believe that she was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, so that would make them what? Cousins. Jesus and James and John would be cousins, first cousins. Again, there would be that family connection. Oh, we're family. You've got to promote me. We're blood. Just because they were family in their eyes, they thought they would draw them closer to Jesus. And the fifth reason, this was a resurfacing issue. Uh, from Mark 9.33, this is an overflow of that, which they are arguing, which is the greatest? Which of the disciples is the best? They didn't just, this just didn't happen once, not twice, but three times. And even in Luke 22, in the upper room, they were arguing about who the greatest is. It was still going on. Jesus washed the feet of the disciples as a lesson. Again, James and John want to be out in front. They want to be ahead of the others. Now, they want to advance in the kingdom. That's not a bad thing. But they're trying to do it as kids, as what children would do. Again, we are like the disciples. We want to advance in the kingdom, but we want to do it our way. Sometimes we don't even know what we're asking for when we ask for things. It's just what we want. What best suits us? Look at verse 38. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? This is a rebuke from Jesus. Jesus comes back with a strong rebuke. 
You don't know what you're talking about. He tells me, you don't have no clue what you are talking about. They had no idea what they would have to do to sit at the right and the left of God. They had no idea. They didn't know that they ultimately would have to pay a price. He says, are you able? By asking them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with I am baptized? We see the drinking of a cup is an idiom from the Old Testament talking about taking in something. Draining it. Taking it in. Isaiah 31 talks about the cup of God's fury and wrath. Jesus was going to have to take the cup of God's wrath. He was going to have to take that cup and drink it. Jesus even says in Matthew 26, let this cup pass from me. He knew what was going to happen. This wasn't easy. Nevertheless, he says, not my will, but your will be done. He would drink and chug the biggest glass of God's wrath ever seen. Full and overflowing. And guess what? He drank it till it was empty. He fully absorbed God's wrath. And listen, he fully experienced it all. It wasn't just a little. He experienced it all of God's wrath. He took it all in. Psalm 75, 8 says, For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed, and he pours out from it. And all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. This verse boldly and directly talks about the ungodly drinking the cup of God's wrath and what that fully entails. He is asking them, are you really willing and able to drink this cup? Let me ask you a question. Are you willing to drink that cup? Then we see, are you able to be baptized? Now, when we see this, we're not talking about the Christian baptism that, we, as we all know. But with the word baptism, we see it means to immerse, uh, immerse into, plunge into, and or submerged. He is saying, are you really able to go all the way under and to suffer? To be drowned in persecution? To be fully emerged in persecution? Are you ready for that? Are you really able to ultimately be killed? That's what he's asking. Can you drink the cup and be fully submerged into it? That's what he is asking here. This is important. If you want the glory, if you want if you want the reward, you are going to have to suffer. If you want the crown, you got to have the cross first. By drinking that cup, Jesus suffered all so what? That we didn't have to suffer. The judgment that we deserved, he took that. He didn't do anything wrong. We did. He who knew no sin became sin. The wrath of God, the wrath of God that, that, that the people have sinned forever, the wrath of God was transferred to his son Jesus. 
I love this. It says, Jesus became the wrath bearer, then he became our sin bearer. They would have to take that same suffering. They were going to have to. Look at verse 39. And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. With the baptism which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Now, another bold statement. We are able. Now, really, are they able? Are they really ready to do that? You've got to shake your head at that response, right? You have to. We see a brash, self-confident, self-promoting, they're being arrogant at this time. You know what this does? This assumes that they can do anything and everything on their own. We have that same trait. We assume that we can do everything on our own. Now, this is another pet peeve of mine. We can do anything if you just put your mind to it. That's not true. You can't do anything you want. If you just put your mind to it. It doesn't happen. That's what our society pushes. Look at the second part of verse 39. We see God's sovereignty at work here. We see God's sovereignty in place here. He sees and knows the future perfectly. We talked about it a few weeks back. He knows exactly what's going to happen. And listen, he tells them what's going to happen. What's going to happen to them? He tells them that. The cup that I drink, you will drink. The baptism with I am baptized, you will be baptized. Listen, Jesus knows that James will be the first disciple to be uh, martyred, to be killed. Look at Acts 12, verse 2, you know, talk about it. And he knows exactly that John will be the last disciple who will ultimately die. He wasn't killed, but he was literally trying to be boiled alive. And then he was banished to Patmos to have an enduring suffering. He knows exactly what's going to happen. They would share the cup and they would share in that baptism. But the difference is there was not, it was not redemptive. Theirs wasn't. This is important. This is important for all of us here at church today. The greater the ministry, the greater the suffering. The greater you're digged into ministry, the more you will suffer. It's going to happen. Talk about God's sovereignty. They were ordained by God to suffer. Listen, we are too. We are going to suffer. Ultimately, God ordained James and John to suffer. But I want you to see this. We might miss miss this. But look at verse 41. It says, "And, And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. Listen, the others were mad too. The others felt the same way as James and John. But James and John were first. We see the word we see the word indignant. There is a resentment and jealousy. Again, they were just like kids too. They were like, they cut in line. 
There was deep, self-centered anger in the tent. They were mad that they got there first. Again, the kids felt left out. Like, Mommy, it's not fair. The other two got to do it before I did. In verse 42 through 44, we see how, how things are in the world versus how they are in the kingdom. Listen, guys, it's not a secret for those who are out there who work, who work in the workplace, how things work in the world. I'm not going to tell you anything new. We all know how it works. We see it in our jobs and in our society. Those who are our rulers in our society, our bosses, our managers, our leaders in the government, in our society, they are in charge. They lord over their people. We see it all over the world. We see as rulers, they are demeaning and intimidating. They throw their weight around. It only matters how many people are under you. Our business world says you've got to work your way to the top. You've got to get to the top of the business, unless you are a failure if you don't. Remember from earlier, it's how we can be served by others in our society. That's how we're taught. They like to exercise authority over their people. The world says it's okay to do that. It's okay to teach that. The same was in their time. Their leaders were arrogant and brash, self-promoting, dictatorial. They lorded over them means to gain mastery or, and to subdue them. They like being at the top. In other words, you have to be at the top of whatever you're doing. It doesn't matter how you get there. You can climb over so-and-so to get to the top as long as you get there. They saw this with Caesar and the Romans. They saw this. Again, our society hasn't changed. From then to now, it hasn't changed at all. We want power. We want to do whatever it takes in our society. But we see the kingdom of God says, John 18, 36. Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, if my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not up from the world. They're not the same. The way the world works, works for the world. It works for that way. But it doesn't work in the kingdom. It doesn't work in the upside down kingdom. It doesn't work. In the kingdom of God, the great are not those who climb to the top who manipulate the system, who do whatever it takes to get to the top. That's not how it works in the kingdom. It is the complete opposite. Look at verse 43 and 44. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servants. And whoever will be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man... Oh, sorry, got too far. We're not going to 45 yet. Sorry about that. But we see there's a big difference between the kingdom and the world. There's a big difference. 
There's a huge difference between big shots and rulers from servants and slaves. There's a big difference. We all want to be great in the kingdom. I want to be great in the kingdom. You do too. So to be great in the kingdom, we must be what? A servant. Let me say it again. We must be a servant. Again, it's the complete opposite of what the world tells you. Again, I love this. It says, don't be the person that everybody serves. Be the person who serves everybody. Say that again. Don't be the person that everybody serves. Be the person who serves everybody. Example of that is, when you go to a fancy restaurant, the bigger and the fancier the restaurant is, the bigger gap between the people eating and the people serving. Right? I've never been to a fancy restaurant, so I don't know. But I'm guessing that the fancy of the restaurant, the bigger gap between the people serving and the people eating. Listen, we are to be the server, not the one being served. That's who we're called to be. To be re- promoted and rewarded in the kingdom, it takes personal sacrifice. Self-giving, servanthood. Not stepping on people to get to the top. Not lording over others. We are to deny what our self wants and to serve others. That's what we're called to do. In the upside-down kingdom, the greatest is the lowest. In the upside-down kingdom, the one who wants to be first is last. One who is over some must be servant of all. One who leads must suffer the most. The ones who lead out front must pay the greatest price of pain for the gospel to advance. In the upside of the kingdom, that has to happen. As I ask the band to come up, you may be sitting out there. You may be just like James and John. Listen, I am. I'm selfish like James and John. It might be all about you. Also, you out there who feels like you're weak and defeated and broken right now, I'm right there with you. You feel like you're getting stepped on by those who lord over you. You feel like you're getting stepped on to get to the top by other people. You may feel like you're the lowest of lows right now. You may feel the world says you are a nobody. I'm there with you. There might be those out there who don't know Jesus, don't know about the gospel, have never heard the gospel. It's okay, I've been there too. But I love this. Uh, these are lyrics from Zach Williams' song. It says, There I was empty-handed, crying out from the pit of my despair. There you were in the shadows, holding out your hand. You met me there. And now where would I be without you? Where would I be without Jesus? I would have nothing. We have nothing without Jesus. Absolutely nothing. He is there for us when we are defeated and broken. This time that we're living in, more and more people are depressed and suffering. He is there for that. He is there for us to lift us up when the world tells you you are not good enough. 
When the world tells you you're not, you're not good enough to be here. Listen, we just celebrate Christmas, the birth of Jesus. And there was only one reason he was sent. To save sinners. That's why he came. He came for the broken heart. He came for the weak. He didn't came for, come for the people who have it all together and can do it on their own. For the problem. He came for the hurting and the broken. And the sick, that's what he came for. And, and it didn't just stop there, him being born. He lived his life. He, he preached the gospel. And ultimately, he died on the cross for those who are downtrodden and hurting. And on the third day, he rose again. He was lifted from the ashes and carries our souls from death to life. We have a life in Christ eternally forever. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, as we just heard your message this morning, Father, the upside-down kingdom is completely different from what the world says, Lord. And that's okay. It's okay to be a servant. It's okay to be hurting and sick and broken. It's okay. Because you died for that. Fathers, we come to the Lord's Supper this morning. We do this in remembrance of you. We do this in remembrance of what you've done for us. By being born in that manger, living your life, spreading the good news, and ultimately dying on the cross, and on the third day, rising again, that we can have life in you, that we can be forgiven of our sins. That's why we drink the cup and take the bread. May we remember that as we take the bread and the cup, Lord. And as we just give back to you all the things that we've been blessed with, Lord, that we may provide for your church, provide for missionaries, and those that need to hear the gospel, Lord. Pray these things in your precious name. Amen.